You went now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I have a special guest joining me for a chat. He's a GP who works in prisons, substance misuse and with the homeless community. He was shortlisted for a lot of prizes I could see on one website. The Bath Flash Fiction Prize 2016, commended for the Faber and Faber Fab Prize 2017. He's got a book out called Stitched Up, Stories of Life and Death from a Prison Doctor. It was released on July 7, 2022. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Shahed Yousaf. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me. I love your podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that you have been listening as well. We had a chat before we came on air, and it sounds like you have been checking it out, which is always good to hear. Oh, mate, not checking it out. Subscribed and listening to, like, you know, very interested in it, because obviously this is an area that I enjoy, but I, I've, I've really learned a lot from your podcast. Wow, that's good to hear. From a doctor. I'm teaching a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Every day is a school day. It certainly is. What we like to do, you've probably heard this if you've listened to some of my interviews, is I like to ask an icebreaker question at the start just to get the, the grey matter flowing, as it were. The one I came up with for yourself, seeing as though you work in the medical field, I wondered if you have an opinion on a discovery or a practice that's had the most significance in the medical field. So it could be a form of surgery, or it could be a, like the Heimlich maneuver, or it could be the invention of or founding of a medicine. What's your opinion on that? Oh, without a doubt, mate, a no-brainer, penicillin. Good answer. That, you know, antibiotics, that has saved millions of lives, countless lives. And um, if you think about how it was discovered, the history of its discovery accidentally, uh, it's just amazing. Um, so that is, yeah, without a doubt, I think that's had the biggest contribution to uh, longevity and mortality and morbidity as in you know prolonging lives and preventing deaths yeah so all hail the antibiotics <laughs> all hail penicillin remind me of the story of how it was discovered well so i'm i'm, I'm not an expert and i'm probably just going to mess it up completely but from what i recall uh, it's a, a scottish scientist and it was a piece of moldy bread that he just kind of left and most of us would just bin it but no that was penicillin and as things are now, I think many of us were going to be forced to eat mouldy bread and think of it as medicine. Isn't it weird, though, that you can eat mouldy cheese, but mouldy bread's a no-no? Oh, dude, I love mouldy cheese. Blue cheese is life. Why is that, though? Is it a different kind of mould or what? Yeah, yeah. So there's good bacteria and bad bacteria. So, um, for instance, you know, you have bacteria that grows in natural environments or some of it will be on the surface of open water like um a part you know like a like scum basically but if you were to get it in your lungs like pseudomonas for instance that could be really dangerous but it grows as a biofilm so a lot of the cures that we have a lot of antibiotics they're isolated from soil samples so yeah you know it, it's it's derived from nature rather than being completely created completely in a laboratory and it's the same like with things like aspirin comes from you know willow bark and lots of the medications that we use digitalis um, they come from herbs or plants and it's just the process that you need to use to make them useful to us that was a really really poor take through medical history which reaches about many thousands of years and i've managed to screw it up i'm gonna fact check that afterwards I think you need to. Yeah, yeah. Please fact check that. I'll put a disclaimer on saying, do not trust this man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please don't refer it to the GMC. But yeah, mouldy bread and soil samples, that I know. And also Pseudomonas grows as a biofilm on the surface of water, penicillin, aspirin. Yeah, that's all correct. All the good stuff. What's the most common ailment? in the uk i would have thought it's asthma uh no i i think what well, it depends so there are many ailments but i think one of the commonest physical issues that we have is low back pain um so that's really common 
And then it, it depends on demographics. So the way that an epidemiologist, for instance, who is someone who would look at various illnesses in a population would look at it is divide it up into male and female and then divide it into chronic illnesses, acute illnesses. But I think back pain is one thing that myself as a GP, I see a lot of in practice. And then obviously with mental health, it'd be low mood and depression. We see a lot of that. But then, yeah, you do have asthma more so in younger people, COPD, which is kind of an irreversible form of asthma. It's also an obstructive breathing um, condition. And you'd see that more so in older people. What do you think the main reason for such a uplift in back pain is? Is it bad posture? Because like I sit in a chair and I'm always forever leaning. I'm never sat up straight. That feels abnormal to me when that's probably wrong. Yeah, I think that's right, actually. So, I mean, I've got uh, I've got back pain as well. Um, and I think a lot of it is from poor posture. I mean, because we're not designed to be sitting. We're designed to be hunter-gatherers and to be walking around for the majority of the day. Um, so this is unnatural. And, and also with the, the seated position, it's it's really bad for you. So the advice would be, you know, seat, sit for no longer than 15 to 20 minutes and then get up, walk around, do some stretches, go and see a physiotherapist. I see a physiotherapist is amazing. I also see an osteopath um, and the osteo is amazing. So take care of your back pain. And I think what's happening now with in the field of medicine is possibly relying less on pharmacology and medicines to take away the pain and more so on holistic therapies and non-pharmacological, non-medication orientated therapies. And personally, um, that's been really, really helpful for me. So, you know, before coming on to the podcast with you today, as I told you before we start recording, I was like, you know, relaxing, doing my stretches. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's really important. Yeah, I know stuff like meditation, yoga. Yeah. Just taking Pilates. time. Pilates. Yeah, all the stuff that most people would think, oh, do you know, what? that's a really good idea. I've meditated before, found it really useful and it, it guided. I'm not at the level where I could do it without being guided yet but it's something i've just neglected i don't know what it is about neglecting things that are good for us yeah it's really interesting isn't it i think it could possibly be because we think that we're faffing about and we don't recognize how important they actually are so for instance you know like when we're and this is something that you know i hold my hands to hold my hands up to myself is that i am someone who measures success with things that I've gained so like awards that I've won or promotions that's not really necessarily all there is and so you know I make a concerted effort to do mindfulness to do breathing techniques and the way that I make sure I don't forget about it is I factor it into my day so yeah. if it comes to like for instance seven seven o'clock I know that I've got 15 minutes of being away from my phone or you know as I said earlier I do my stretches two three four five times a day it's really easy to get into good habits. And, and I think that's what we need. We're all so fractious and we live such busy lives and our brains are so busy and overstimulated. Um, and it's really important to take time out and to realize that we have to be kind to ourselves. One thing I really, really related to in your book. So Dr. Yousaf's book, Stitched Up, and it's the stories of life and death from a prison doctor, which we will come on to career-wise. But one thing I really related to was when you mentioned in there how you kind of, you constantly have to fill your brain with tasks. You were scared of downtime. And I think that's something not just myself, but a lot of people can relate to. It's the fear of, if I'm sat there doing nothing, a combination of feeling guilty of wasting time, but also it gives a chance for dark thoughts to enter yourself and to put yourself down. How hard has it been to transition from someone in that mind frame to where you are now, someone who does take time out for mindfulness and stretching and self-care? So I think um, one of the things that's really important is to recognize burnout and to recognize your own physical symptoms and your own uh, emotional state what's really ironic is with doctors we're so good at giving advice to other people and we're not necessarily very good at taking the advice ourselves so I think oftentimes if someone were to come and present to us with our own symptoms it'd be really easy to say right well therefore you need to and 
give advice that we wouldn't necessarily take when we're giving it to ourselves. And I think it got to the stage where it's exactly as you say, when I'm at work, I'm at work. And it's probably the same with yourself. You know, you feel as if you've got a window to work and you're there to work because you've got so many other things to do, so much to pack into 24 hours. But then I, I realized that sometimes it is a matter of just taking time out. But doctors and nurses and paramedics and people who work in these environments, you know, they'll often tell you that they've skipped breaks, they've skipped toilet breaks, they've not eaten that day. It's been a 12-hour shift and they've been wanting to go to the toilet to relieve themselves and they haven't been able to factor that in. But they've been making time for many other people and putting themselves second, third, fourth, fifth. And then you realise that you're, you can't carry on like that. And I think that's why I wrote this book, because I wanted to show uh, and wanted to explore using myself as an example of what happens when you don't take care of yourself and how important it is to take care of yourself. Yeah. One of the most recent chapters I read was chapter six, I believe it was, called Trauma. And, and this is where you sort of, I think it was on the back of, you'd been called to a code blue for a patient just revived him and you were walking out of of the prison with one of your colleagues and I think you were opening up about the time just before your medical finals and and your dad ended up sadly passing away do you mind just walking us through not only the chain of events there but the effect that had on you mentally yeah so um I was really close to my dad so my dad was my best friend growing up uh, I'm close to both my parents uh, we're quite a close family in general I think sometimes fathers and sons have fractious relationships and we didn't. We had a really good relationship where we could talk about anything and, and did. And also I think it's just his personality. He was very chatty and funny and, you know, one of those people who, you know, will tell you that everything's going to be all right and you believe them. Whereas some people will tell you everything's going to be all right. And you're like, yeah, you're just trying to placate me. Mm. Um, thank you, but I don't believe it. But when he said it, you know, he did believe it, uh, which is really funny now because I'm a doctor and he didn't get to see me become a doctor, but um, now I'm a doctor. And, I, and if I tell people that, you know, it's going to be all right, they do tend to trust me. And I think it's because I've realized how important it is to be reassured myself. And I like to reassure people, not to give false hope, that's quite different, but to give reassurance and to talk people through a process. Um, yeah, so he was poorly. We knew he was unwell. He had, he had heart issues. And then it was the night before finals. So finals, uh, I assume all medical schools have it, but um, it's you have a final set of exit exams at medical school. And I went to Warwick Medical School and we had it over two days. Um, so mine were on the Monday and the Tuesday. So the Monday went well. I phoned home to say, yeah, everything's good. I spoke to my dad and, you know, had a really nice chat. And then within 45 minutes or an hour, he was dead. And I had no intimation that you know, he was going to die. And I don't think any of us did. Um, so it was a sudden death. Um, and then my sister Shazadi called me. Um, and then I had to go home. I had to go back to Birmingham. And yeah, and that was it. That was pretty much, I think that's when my life kind of ended. There's, you know, how we write an autobiography of ourselves. Um, and I really do see that as a very strong demarcation of how everything that I'd known to come uh, everything that I'd known to trust everything that I had expected and planned ahead for just kind of ended and then a new life began uh, but it was nightmarish it was horrendous and I think to make things worse being a doctor I can say this in retrospect is that as a man I didn't talk about it so I didn't talk to my friends about it and I'm blessed to have amazing friends and family but I never spoke about it it was far too painful um, and so when I was working and people would ask about my dad I'd be like you know have you got anything nice for father's dad I'd be like yeah got some flowers didn't say the flowers were for the, for the grave right okay. um, but just kind of like you know didn't want to talk about it didn't feel ready to talk about it but that's not healthy that's not to say that you should force people to talk about things that they don't want to but I think when they are ready, it's important to listen. Absolutely. I, I heard a phrase one time and it said, it was uh, one of these memes that you see. One of my friends who had lost her mum and, and dad, I think, within a short space. And it was four squares and maybe it was two. The first one was a circle, like a, a black circle. 
and the outside was their mind, let's say. And it said, this is how people think you deal with grief. And the ball was this, say, you know, the size of a golf ball, let's say, and the circle around it of your mind was a similar size. But the golf ball in the second picture was the size of a marble. So it's how people think you deal with grief and they think that it shrinks when the reality is the opposite. The golf ball stays the same, but your strength grows and expands. Yeah, I mean, that's that's beautiful. And that's exactly how it was. And, and um, I wrote a po- uh, I recorded uh, um, something for Radio 3 last week, and it went out last week, uh, about going ho- coming home and what coming home means. And that's exactly the image that I discussed. I, I, it's The grief has stayed the same size. It's just that my life has got bigger around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously I've, you know, I've lived, I've had more experiences, things, great things have happened, not so great things have happened as well, but my life has got bigger around it. It doesn't go away, but you have other things in your life as well. Men need to talk about mental health and, and grief and anxiety and depression and mental health issues more so. And this is coming from a doctor. I didn't do it, but I recognize how cathartic it was to do it and in fact in writing this book a lot of my friends for the very first time are going to realize what I went through and a lot of them have come back to me and said I didn't know this is the problem with men isn't it and you know we're both our one we're both probably guilty of it I'll openly admit I've spoke to a counselor before I found it tremendously helpful there is still a stigma it's still the biggest killer of men between what the ages of I don't know 18 and 50 odd it's the biggest killer Men just need to talk, and you, you can, it doesn't matter how many adverts you put out there, how many TV shows you see that represent it. Unless you actually open your mouth and start talking about it, nothing's going to change. And it's such a sad state of offence, really. Yeah, and I think it's 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 important to know that this can affect anybody. It's you know it's one of those things, and um, it's not related to um, a demographic. You know, all of us have adverse life events. Um, and it's not to say that a doctor is going to deal with it any better than someone who's got absolutely no medical knowledge, because um, clearly I didn't deal with it in the best way possible. And this is as someone who would see people with anxiety and depression in their clinic on multiple occasions every single day and would give advice and would tell them about hotlines to call and this service is available and that service is available but I didn't take that advice myself. And I think that's the bit, that's the disconnect that we need to sort of question. And it's not to say um, that I was doing anything particularly harmful. I mean, I didn't take drugs or, you know, drink alcohol or behave in a way that was neglectful of my own health, but it's just something I didn't feel comfortable talking about. Do you think people can sometimes put themselves down to the extent where they think oh i'm worrying about it but in the reality things people have worse problems i'm not going to burden people with my problems well that's exactly the reason why i chose the career that i did so when i start so when i when my dad passed away um it completely sort of changed our family in the sense that you know my mum said right well okay, you don't have to go and do your final examinations. Let's completely forget about that. What we're going to do is we're going to sell everything we've got and we're going to spend our money going around the world and having a great time. So that was what my mum's advice was, which is basically now we're done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She was like, we are done. We've worked very hard and you've worked really hard. That's it. The hard days are over. We're going (laughs) to chill out for the rest of our life and spend our money, which is... It's kind of a role reversal, isn't it? And I was the one who was kind of like, nope, I'm going to, because obviously it was, you know, a few hours later. I was like, no, I'm going to drive to medical school and sit my final exams and I'm going to finish off what I, you know, finish off and qualify and become a doctor. Whereas like my mum and sister were like, no, do not do that. Chill out. But I did that. And then I wanted to help people who really, really needed it. So who, it's the inverse care law. So the people who really need the help are the ones who often don't get the help. And that would be, you know, working class people, homeless people. So that was when I I passed my finals. Don't know how, but I did. And then I qualified and became a GP. And then my first job as a GP was to work as a homeless GP. And the reason that I worked with the homeless community is because I wanted to work with people whose life and trauma was bigger than mine. 
So, and I think the reason for that is so that I could ignore my own problems by comparing it with theirs and say, well, hang on, that's what you call problems. You, this is, these are first world problems, mate, that you've got. Look mm-hmm. at that. Makes total sense. Yeah. So how long did you spend at Warwick then? Is it seven years normally for? No. So, um, so I did my A-levels and I had no, we didn't, uh, you know, I don't come from a medical family. We had no doctors and then growing in our family, all friends actually, and growing up, like the idea of me becoming a doctor was as extraordinary as me becoming an astronaut for NASA. Mm. It just wasn't something that I factor in. I factored into my life. It wasn't something that I thought was achievable. So in fact, I did arts A-levels. So, you know, I like writing, I like painting, um, you know, I enjoy psychology. So those were the A-levels that I did at first. Um, and then I went to university. I was always good at science. I, th- I think the problem was that I was good at a lot of things apart from maths. And I had no idea what I wanted to do career-wise. And so I did a degree in biomedical science just because my A-level biology tutor had got the job doing teaching the, the undergraduate degree program and he was like yeah why don't you do this so I was completely at a loss I think I was interested in possibly studying anthropology I had no idea so I went into biomedical science and really really enjoyed the science aspect of it and excelled at it and it was in my final year there that this new university opened which is Warwick University and they would take graduate students. So if you had a, a degree, first of all. So it was pretty seamless. I got my biomedical science degree and then went to Warwick, uh, which is a four-year degree. But um, I did it in five because I was just having such a good time. So I just didn't want to leave. <laughs> Not because you were struggling. No. <laughs> great time. <laughs> so how long did you work with the as, as a GP for the homeless? So I graduated and became a GP in 2012, and that was my first job. And I did that for about three or four years. And it was soon after working with the homeless community that one of the doctors who was also working there also did shifts in a prison. I didn't even know that was a thing. I mean, that's probably just my own ignorance, but I didn't know that GPs worked in prisons. I thought that if prisoners got unwell, they'd be sent to hospital or somehow be sent to a community GP. I had no idea there was this whole infrastructure doctors, nurses, admin, healthcare assistants, paramedics, pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, all working within these prison sites. I had no idea. So I, I did a couple of shifts in a prison and I was like, I like it. And it was kind of like a guttural response. I was like, yeah, I really like this. Whereas lots of people will go to prison, GPs will go to prison and they'll be done by lunchtime. They're like, yeah, walk me to the gate. I'm going home. <laughs> this is not for me but that wasn't my response i was like this is great can you put your finger on why that was i was like you said just a gut feeling i think it there's there's a few things i think one of the things was that i am socially minded i am community orientated like obviously very close family i do value friendship and family and close bonds that is something that's really important to me so wherever i've worked where you know, from being a medical student to being a junior doctor, house officer, F1, F2, wherever I've worked, I've always made friends and I've always maintained friends. Whereas some people will go and do a four month job and they move on and that's it. And you'll never hear from them again. I'm not, that's, that's not my personality type. Wherever I go, if I make a friend, it's a friend for life and we'll stay in contact for the next 20 years. And that's pretty much since my first job as a house officer, was doing paediatric endocrinology at Birmingham Children's Hospital. And I made friends there and they're still my friends now. And that was a four-month rotation. And then the next four-month rotation, I made friends who are still my friends. So that is something that I gravitate towards. And then when you're working in a confined environment like prisons, the stakes are really high. You have to work together and you have to get along because if you don't, if there's a mistake, it's catastrophic. So I think those bonds of friendship are stronger in a prison and in, in that sort of environment. So you're, you very quickly get to know each other and become friends, not with everyone, that's not possible, but you will make friends there. Uh, and you know you rely on each other, possibly more so than in other environments, in other GP practices. And something that really appeals to me is it's non-hierarchical. So amongst my best friends, um, in the prison environment will be a nurse and a pharmacy technician, 
not necessarily doctors hanging out with doctors and nurses with nurses. And that's something that really appeals to me. Um, so like when we go out for dinner, it'll be, you know, a healthcare assistant and a nurse or someone who happens to be a healthcare assistant happens to be a nurse. But that's not why you're friends. You're friends because of your character and your personality and oftentimes sense of humor. So in a standard GP, would there be clicks like that? So the doctors would hang yes. out with the is that what it's like? Yeah, it is. It's it's I mean, I think it happens where you know, wherever you work, um, there will be some sort of way where, for instance, I think doctors are renowned for being quite cliquey anyway. Mm-hmm. Um and even within the broad umbrella of of medicine, you know, surgeons tend to hang around with surgeons and there's medical doctors with medical doctors, pediatricians with pediatricians. And, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a running joke and it's something that we recognize and laugh at. And, you know, you have stereotypes of what different specialities are like. So, you know, you have the bombastic surgeon, especially like the trauma orthopedic surgeon. Um, you have, you know, the pediatric doctor who's quite childlike, you have the psychiatrist who's an interesting character. So I think we have these sort of stereotypes in our minds, but oftentimes, well, I mean, in my experience, it's a truism that doctors tend to hang out with doctors and kind of limit their worlds to that sort of friendship group. And I, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's just because those are the people you spend most of your time with. But that is something that I've not had because growing up, none of my friends were from medical families or you know i have a, a a good mix of friends who are not doctors and that's important to me how are prison gps viewed among the wider gp community because i've got this vision in my head of because you treat people who are in there for doing god knows what there might be a bit of stigma to say you know we help the real people the honest people so that's an interesting texture. To be honest, I don't think people are even aware it's a speciality. So me, when I was going through my GP trail, I mean, certainly not at medical school. I didn't know that there was that this was a speciality that you could be a GP who works in prisons. I don't think we were taught about it. Uh, I think I, I think having spoken to people involved in medical education now, I think these sort of non typical environments they are being taught about but certainly amongst my GP colleagues you know when I was saying oh you know I work as a prison GP a lot of them like what is that and what does that involve and does that mean that you're in the community and the prisoners come to you or oh you're based in the prison there's no you know there's very little knowledge of it I would say then yeah I mean a lot of the questions I got, and I think it's pretty much the opening line of my book is why would anyone want to work with thieves, murderers, and rapists? And that's a question I've had quite a few times. I mean, it's so much so that it it opened my book. And I wrote the book to kind of explain why someone would want to work with thieves, murderers, and rapists. So, yeah, I think sometimes people do think, well, you know, they should just be in prison and they should rot in there. And I hope that when people read this book they change their mind a little bit Mm. it definitely comes across because even though you're writing about people who have might be an aggressive personality they might be addicted to drugs and try and con their way into getting more or selling drugs to people and stuff the one thing that was never in my mind which is good for the way you've written it was oh, this person's done X, Y, and Z. I know you don't mention it for a reason, but at no point was I thinking, oh, I wonder what this person did. I was reading it from a point of view of thinking, this is a troubled person who happens to be addicted to this drug, or this is someone who's got a background of ultraviolence or was in a gang, or like you mentioned, an accountant in there who was done for money laundering, and he was in there. So I don't think, oh, money laundering, what a bad guy. I just think he, this guy's been shoved in there now, completely foreign. So whenever he gets mentioned, I just think of him as like a, like the outsider, just trying to protect himself at all times. The way you've written it does reflect that. It's more about the people and their personalities rather than their crimes. Oh, thank you. That's really, uh, it's really great to hear. And that was really important to me, which is that I didn't want it to be salacious. 
So I didn't want it to be like, this man has killed four people and he came into my clinic with a headache. That's that's not <laughs> what I'm interested in and I'm not interested in talking about. And he stabbed this person 44 times because that's not what interests me about working in a prison. What interests me about working in a prison is that they're people first and we have a duty to look after people. And also I think something that's really important is there but for the grace of God goes all of us. Um, and again, it's something that I've seen many times and it's something that I talk about in the book is that anyone could go to prison. I mean, literally, you're just bad, one bad decision away from going to prison. If you're driving at 40 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone and knock someone over, you're going to go to prison and you're going to see me and I'm going to be your prison doctor. And what you don't want is for me to be like, well, why were you driving like that? And you know, yeah. well, you're an idiot and I'm judging you. That's that is not helping anyone and I'm not there to judge you. I'm there, I'm, we're NHS and I'm there to provide you with healthcare so that your asthma is well taken care of. And if you are feeling low because you're in prison and you want to talk to me about your mood, and that's fine, we'll have a chat about that and I'll make sure that I do my best, my very best for you to make you make the situation tolerable. But the judgment aspect doesn't come into it at all. And at the end of the day, you know, Having worked in prisons now for 10 years, it's the people that really stand out, not their crimes. I think it's interesting that you've put it that way as well, because you wouldn't walk into a GP out on the street and expect them to say, well, what, what have you done? I'm not treating you because you work for a car dealership and I bought a bad car one. So they wouldn't ask you what Absolutely. your job was before treating you. They'd ask you what your symptoms are and try and heal you, which is what you would expect. Yeah. See, that's the thing, though, isn't it? That's what. So that's the thing. It's the stigma that comes with being a prisoner or being an ex-prisoner. So, seventy percent of the people who are in prison are there for non-violent crimes. Now, that is a statistic that often surprises people. So, what are they in for? It could be for you know driving whilst under the influence, so that we have a lot of driving crimes. It could be for drug dealing. Um, it could be for lots of things, but it's not necessarily violence. And then there are some people who who are in prison and they're not found guilty. You know, they're on remand and they're in prison until they go to court. And then when they do go to court, the vast majority are found to be innocent. Uh, so, in fact, we were in no position to judge them. So I think, you know, we can't just think of people who are in prison as being the complete wrong ones and they don't deserve any sort of empathy or sympathy. I think that's just the wrong way of looking at it. And also we're sending more prison, more people to prison than ever before. I mean, we send, England and Wales send more people to prison than any other country in Western Europe. I think we need to be having a question about uh, our legal system and who we're sending to prison and why. Mm. There are better solutions. It's really expensive. It's approximately £44,000 per prisoner per year. And do they all need to be in prison? Is it rehabilitative? Does it cut down on reoffending? If you have to send people to prison, what you want is that when they are released into the community, which is where they go in the end, and they're your neighbours and mine, they're less likely to commit crime. What you don't want is for them to be in a system which brutalises them and makes them angrier and makes them more likely to commit crimes. And unfortunately, the rehabilitation rates and it's called recidivism, which is where they commit a crime again it's approximately 50 percent within 12 months and even higher beyond that so it's not working it's a, my introduction is called a broken system and hopefully if we can get people over the mental block because it's really low down on people's concerns you know prisoners and prison health They're like who cares but if you realize that it's really expensive and also it's not actually benefiting anyone and it makes you and I the victims more likely to be the victims of crime going forwards because we haven't rehabilitated these people, then it becomes a bit more important. And these are just, I mean, I'm not a politician and I don't have any legal qualifications, which I make quite clear. But I really do think that this is an area that we have to look into and, and give it more attention and give it more importance because it is it deserves it. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. What sort of things would you suggest if we were to look at more rehabilitation? Because the problem I'm thinking is 
pretty much every single person's crime is different. So although there may be similarities, there will still be differences. So how do you think they could, I don't know how it would work if they would do classes or if they would do workshops or whatever they would do, who would you bump in with who? What would the logistics of it? I think it'd be a nightmare. No, we've done it before. So it's basically non-custodial sentences. So it's where you, you know, it it can be where you're you're having to do courses or things in the community rather than being in prisons. We have to think about, is there anything specifically about being in prison which is going to help in your rehabilitation? Now, there are certain people who definitely, for public safety, need to be in prison. I'm not saying open all the gates and do me out of a job. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that... I am saying that definitely we need to be considering non-custodial sentences more. However, it becomes political because all of the political parties want to prove that they are harder, they're tougher on crime than the opposition. So pushing for non-custodial sentences and looking at more rehabilitation in prison is not something that gets political votes which is why we end up in the situation we're in, where we're building even more prisons and being tougher on crime. Well, if you want to be tougher on crime, you can follow the Norwegian model. You can follow what successful countries have done, um, like Norwegia, uh, Norway, Scandinavian countries. Follow their example. They're showing us the way, how you can create a safer society, and it's cheaper in the long run. And also, maybe we shouldn't have got rid of about 10,000 prison officers who were involved in the rehab always helps to have staff <laughs> well i mean these are the guys who do the rehab and yeah. they do the safety for all of us and then you know to lose them you know 12 years ago 10 years ago and to have benchmarking and things like that coming in this is why we've got the cri- i mean we've got a crisis and this is why we've got the crisis if you're going to cut costs this is what you see which is unimagined levels of violence in prisons prisoners on prisoners and prisoners towards staff what's your opinion on this isn't necessarily a prison GP question, but what's your p- opinion on the rising levels of knife crime in the UK? We recently had a, a fatal stabbing in Huddersfield, where I'm from. 15-year-old kid got stabbed outside his, his high school uh, in Fartown. And when I spoke to Wendy Joseph, I know you're doing a bit of a, an upcoming tour with Wendy. I was saying, we were talking about knife crime, and she said, it might have been Dr. Shepard, I, I get mixed up, apologies, but... Basically, amongst my interviews, the point was the number of stabbings isn't necessarily coming down. Rather, it's the level of expertise in the medical field that's improving. So say 100 people got stabbed last year. In reality, the percentage of fatalities might have come down this year, but it's still 100 stabbings. It's just that 80 of them have been saved because the medical side is improving. For me, it's a real concern. I know we don't have guns in this country in the open. I know in the underworld they do. But you see people on Twitter walking around city centres with these big 15-inch long knives trying to stab people in broad daylight. What's your thoughts on this? For me, it's a bit of an epidemic. Yeah, so I think um, it, it was, where, yeah, because I, I did listen to the podcast and it and it was Wendy Joseph who, who spoke to you about uh, knife crime in particular. And, and, you know, we're going to be panellists at the Birmingham Literature Festival together. So it'll be interesting to hear her thoughts and to talk to her a little bit more about it. I haven't seen a lot of it. But as you say, we don't have as much gun crime in the UK as we do have knife crime. But it is something that we definitely need to tackle. And also it's the what always surprises and shocks me is the ages of the people first of all who are stabbed and then the perpetrators of these attacks it does seem to be quite a young person's crime and it you know oftentimes it is gang related not always it does tend to be in certain areas more than others but again i think it's is to do i take your point that they are not always leading to fatalities because of really good medical health care um, that's saving lives but, you know, to be working in A&E and someone comes in with multiple stab wounds, it's, it's pretty horrendous. Is the average age of prisoners coming down at all? Because a lot of the crimes I see on the news, it is teenagers, young adults, people in their early 20s. Do you know any data about the average age of prisoners in the UK? 
so over the past 10 years, I've worked in about a dozen prisons, if not more. And, and the book itself is set in a, a fictionalized prison. Um, so it draws from various places I've worked in. But I've worked in young offenders institutes. I've worked in women's prisons, in men's prisons of all categories. Uh, so in the UK, we have categories from A, which is maximum security, to D, which is an open prison. And I've worked across or worked with colleagues in these settings. And in fact, one of the things that I've noticed is that we're seeing a lot more older people. Okay. Uh, so we're seeing people who are in their 70s, 80s. And that's because it's historical sex crimes. Um, oh, and I think okay. we're, you know, that is something that I see a lot more of. You are seeing people who I, I think it's got a lot to do with Operation Newtree and with Jimmy Savile and various people like that, high profile cases. People are coming forwards and saying, this is something that happened to me in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And those people are being convicted. So that is something that I've noticed over the past 10 years, we're seeing a lot more, much older people in wheelchairs, lots of ill health. So that is something that I've noticed with regards to the younger age group. No, not so much. I haven't seen very many changes in that. You do see all ages in a prison. You've worked in a remand prison as well, right? So it sounds from what you wrote in the book like that's such a high turnover. You barely get a chance to know someone's prescriptions and then they're gone again. Do you prefer working in remand prisons or do you prefer a, a more established prison where people have been there for a couple of years? Yeah, so I tend to work across sites. So I've, I've worked in, and sometimes, and the, and the way it works is that sometimes you'll have a car park with three different prisons attached to it. So it could be a young offenders institute, a vulnerable prisoner prison. So that's for generally sex offenders. And then you can have like a CCAT a, a prison. And, you know, you might have to do something in each of them. So I work across sites and not necessarily in one prison. I think one of the challenges of working, it's exactly as you've said, Stuart, one of the challenges of working in a remand prison is that when they come in, so first night reception, you may know nothing about them. And, you know, they might they might come in and they might have mental health issues, substance misuse issues, physical health issues like epilepsy. They might have been homeless and they might tell you that they've not been taking their medications for six months or so. Um, what that means is that you have no idea what they're meant to be on and what you can do to keep them safe. So you just prescribe as, as best you can to keep them safe. And it might be the next day that you get their GP summary through. Um, so you actually find out or you get the notes from the community mental health team. So you actually find out what it is that they're meant to be on. But if they haven't been taking, for instance, an antipsychotic medication for six months, you will need to work with the forensic psychiatrist in the prison about, do we restart it? Do we have a period of assessment without medication? So I think that's where teamwork comes in. I couldn't do my job without the forensic psychiatrists that we have, um, the nurses that we have, the paramedics, the admin team who do all of the running around and communicate with the community GP to get us our information and also contact all the hospitals to see if they've got any outstanding appointments. So it is really stressful. It's definitely taken some years off my life, I would say, but it's also really exciting. But it's exciting in a horrible kind of <laughs> scary way. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think you'd probably look for some other synonym of exciting, but yeah, I would definitely recommend it. If anybody is interested in working in prisons and they've thought about it or they have an interest or they would like to know what it's like, definitely would advise that you go and do it. It's not, you know, I've written a book about it and lots of people have come back and said, I would be interested in visiting it. Please do. First of all, we need you. And secondly, this might be your calling. And, you know, you can volunteer that we have the excellent Shannon Trust, which is um, um, a literacy agency, a liter yeah, a literacy agency where it teaches people to read, um, which is something that's really important to me. And, you know, there's many things that you could do. You could do lots of good work in a prison and you'd find it really life affirming. There's a lot of good work being done that people have no idea about. I mean, before I spoke to Dr. Amanda Brown, who also prison um, GP, I had no idea. It's not just the doctors that don't have an idea. The public doesn't have a clue either. But yeah, the fact that they teach them to read and write and just to try and ingratiate them back in preparation for their ultimate release, subject to their 
approval of it, of course. I wondered if you could walk me through a bog standard day in the life of a prison GP. So, you know, it could be from the moment you wake up, you think, God, not again. Or you think, yes, I can't wait to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think generally you, um, a day would be that you go into the prison and obviously, you know, it's a bit like airport security, you know, everything is, you patted down and you go through x-ray machines to make sure that you're not bringing anything in and there's sniffer dogs and things like that. So, you know, high security. Um, and then you would normally start by having a clinic in the morning and that would be so approximately 10 slots, for instance, but there would be multiple clinics happening at the same time. So this would normally be in the healthcare department. But we do also have clinic rooms on the wings, which is where the prisoners are based. So we would sometimes do a clinic in a, in a normal wing where it's just you and all the prisoners. You may not have a nurse with you. You certainly won't have an officer with you. Um, it's literally just you. And you would have a radio with you if you're lucky. Not always because we, you know, we don't often have enough radios to go around. But the radio is what has the panic button on it. Um, so that's why you would try to get a radio if you can. If I was working remotely, so if I was working, sorry, if I was working on the wings, I would like to have a radio with me or to have someone with me who's got a radio just in case things get sticky. Um, so you would do, you would see about 10 patients, but then on top of that, you would also have add-ons. So that means that the other clinics that are going on, like the nurses clinic or HCA healthcare assistant clinic or a psychiatrist clinic, they might ask you to review one of their patients. So that list just gets added to and gets longer and longer. But it must be finished by 12 o'clock, which is when all the guys from the waiting room are taken back to the wings for lunch. They don't have lunch, you know, on long tables. Um, as you see in films, everyone eats their lunch in their cell. Um, and then they, they have um, their head counts. And then again, we would have our afternoon handover, which is a big meeting that everyone from healthcare goes to. We also have multidisciplinary team meetings. There's a lot of meetings in prisons. So the meetings would be with the GP and primary care team. And we also have a meeting which is wider and that has the mental health team, psychosocial team, drugs team, psychiatrist as well. And we do that. But that has to be over by two o'clock. We have another clinic at two o'clock. And that's, um, again, another 10 to 15 patients. And then you also have to do a ward round of the segregation wing, which has, you know, approximately 15 to 20 people in that. So you have to go around literally to every door, eyeball them, talk to them, ask them how they are and do a mini clinic. And if your prison has an inpatient unit, you'd have to do a ward round of that. You're busy. And then as well as that, there's the emergencies and there's always emergencies. There's always a lot of emergencies somewhere you're having to run with the team to the wings. Um, and it could be a stabbing, it could be a burns victim, it could be a hanging, it could be a drugs overdose, it could be an assault, it could be a major fight, it could be, yeah, I mean, and it, the list just goes on and on and on. And as well as that, then you've got all the tasks to do. And, you know, it's not unusual to have 150, to, 150 tasks to do, and that would be scripts that you need to write. And then you have the bloods to do, and then you have letters and correspondence from hospital. And you've got to pack that into a working day. So it is frenetic, and you really come to rely on your colleagues. And oftentimes, you know, you'll be working with another doctor, and you need to get on with that doctor, and you need to divvy up the tasks between you. But it's busy. How hard is it to keep to a schedule? Because sometimes in your normal doctor's office out here, you know, they might be running late. The dentist, let's say, mine always runs late. Is it hard to get everyone in that you're supposed to see in your morning or afternoon clinics? No, it's exactly the same. So, for instance, it's meant to be one patient, one problem. So if you're going in there to talk about your mental health, you're there to talk about your mental health. That never happens. And, you know, it will be mental health. And also I need to have my trainer sent in. And also my mattress is really thin. Can you write a letter so I get an extra mattress? And also I want a single cell because if you don't give me a single cell, I'm going to kill my Padme. And also, Doc, I haven't told anyone, but I'm using anabolic steroids. And I've noticed that I'm developing female breast tissue. And that will be that could be the first patient that you see. And there's a lot to untangle there. Most probably importantly for me is the fact that this man is threatening to kill his padmate. So then you think, okay, I need to speak to the security team. I can't let this guy go back to the wing and go back to his cell if he's threatening to kill someone. Now what do we do? So there's a lot of 
decisions that need to be that you need to take and you need to take them quickly. I think in the book I talk about one of the very per- first patients I saw as a prison GP ten years ago walked in and said, and I said, you know, something along the lines, "Oh, how can I help you? I want to kill my wife." And then you're like, "Okay, I really don't know what to do in this situation, but I know it's serious. I know <laughs> this isn't something that can be ignored. We need to do something about this. Your poor wife." And then, luckily, I had an amazing nurse sitting in with me who's like, "Yeah, that's really important. We need to call." the prison officers who are based in the prison. We need to call safer custody. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need to make sure his wife is safe. This, we cannot just brush this off as, I, he didn't say it as a joke. I mean, he was deadly serious, deadly yeah. serious. But um, yeah, we you get these sort of challenges that you don't normally get in the community. I think the thing I would say is that you never know what's going to, who or what situation is going to walk through your door. And it's never dull. It is never dull. Is there a risk of becoming addicted to that drama? Do you think you would be bored, daft, going back to normal public GP work? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It took a while to get used to it. And, you know, it's quite a smelly environment. It's a raucously loud environment with people screaming and shouting all the time and banging doors and kicking things and banging gates and you know, your bones rattle sometimes when a heavy metal gate is slammed like a few inches from your face. Your bones are like tuning forks. And then after a few weeks, habituation happens where these noises and stuff become normalized. And then the thought of working in a normal GB practice, just you just think, nah, that's not really for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really for me. Yeah, I can imagine. It, it must be... You probably don't even hear stuff like people shouting and you just probably tune it out, I would have thought. Yeah, and I think you get really good at being shouted at and you get really good at being low-key threatened. That's not to say that you normalise it because it's never normal. And that's not to say that you stop being concerned about it or that you're blasé about it because there's a danger there's a difference between fear and danger and you may not always be fearful but you always recognize it's a dangerous environment Mm. but i think you do have that yeah i mean it's it's not boring when someone is threatening to rip your head off or is telling you what they're going to do to your intestines or is using all sorts of swear words at you and then when you're able to calm them down and then talk them through it and then they stop swearing and then they understand where you're coming from and they understand that you're trying to help them and therefore I cannot give you this medication because you are on medication A and if I give you medication B it can stop your heart which is why I can't give you that medication even though you've said you won't leave my room without that medication. And I think that can be it's called de-escalation and so de-escalating really hostile consultations is great where someone comes in and you know they're threatening to hit you with your keyboard and then towards the end 10 minutes later you're shaking hands and you've kind of educated them as well about medications and you've drawn a you've done a drawing for them and that feels really good because you're using all the skills you learned at medical school and with being a doctor and someone who was really going to kick off is now not kicking off that's good Quite rewarding, I imagine, knowing that you can go from getting your head almost ripped off to being besties. Yeah, I mean, we're not pen pals, and uh, <laughs> there won't be any, you know, uh, there's not going to be any invites to my birthday. But yeah, so I think what it is, is that it's a very hostile environment, and it's a very alpha male environment or an alpha female environment, depending on where you're working. And so these guys are used to using swears. Oftentimes, you know, they use swears as almost like an abbreviation. It's like effing this and effing that and effing this and effing that. And if you are very prissy about it, you're just setting up barriers for yourself and for the consultation. But sometimes people are not aware of how aggressive they're coming across and they might be shouting, but you need to recognize that it's not intended to cause offense. It's just that it's a really loud place and they're used to shouting at people. I think if you try to normalize things as much as possible, as long as it's not a direct threat where they're saying that if you don't give me this, I'm going to do this to you because that's, you know, you need to get out of there and hit the panic alarm pretty quick. 
I was going to ask, I normally ask people if there's been an experience in the life that's changed them. We've touched upon that with your dad, but is there anything professionally that may have happened that changed how you approach the job? Uh, oh, there's been lots of things. Um, so I got hit by a HGV on my way to work. So I was driving to work and my car got hit by a HGV. And then I developed back problems and was under the neurosurgeons and was off work for a period of time and then was working from home. I think that was something because there are certain medications that, you know, as a doctor, we try to avoid. So things like gabapentinoids, which is pregabalin, gabapentin, diazepam, tramadol, codeine, oromorph, sleeping tablets. And these are medications that for 10 years I was trying very hard not to prescribe. And then I had the car accident and then I was on all of them. And that was a trip. I love that. And you can't have them, guys, because I'm saving them for myself. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, you know, I, it's really interesting, actually. Having been on them and having realized how sedating they were and how not great for how I was feeling they were and how addictive they were, it took a lot of effort to come off them and to detox myself off them because they are so addictive. Um, you know, your body craves them. Mm. Um, which is, I think it's given me more empathy for my patients because, you know, these, I'm not someone who takes meds and these are medications that, you know, they will come in and say, I need this. And I understand that a little bit more. I'd still stick to my guns and explain why they need to detox off it because I have personal experience of detoxing off it. Do you think, and it had never happened because it's just ridiculous as a theory, but if there was some way of, in a controlled environment, GPs taking the things that the prisoners have taken, I'm not talking extreme things, just to experience the feeling of it whilst you're on it, the withdrawals from it. Because I imagine the prisoners would kind of have extra respect for you in that regard to think, actually, this guy's been there, done that, he knows what he's talking about because he's done these substances. It had never happened because it's ridiculous, but do you think that could possibly be helpful? Well, yeah, I mean, I know that, uh, and, you know, speaking from past experience, I know that I trained with older psychiatrists who said that part of their training was to, and I don't know how legal it is, and they're retired now, so the GMC is not involved, but, <laughs> uh, but I know that they said that part of their training was to take some of these medications and to see how it affected them. However, what I would say is that addiction is a huge area of science, and you and I can take a medication and not respond to it in the same way that someone who has an addictive personality or who has suffered a lot of harm in their life would respond to it. We all respond to life events and medications in a completely different way and in an unpredictable way as well. So for instance, you know, if we were to take two medications, like, so I, I, it was really easy for me to be detoxed off opioids, gabapentinoids, diazepam and sleeping tablets. It took a few months, but you know, I, I wasn't craving it after that period of time. And now I'm not on those medications. But that's because I've had a pretty bang up upbringing, you know, quite a solid background. And I don't feel emotionally harmed. However, I think it's got a lot to do with psychiatry and psychology. You know, if you've not had very many good experiences in your life, and then you take something that feels euphoric, and that's the first time you felt euphoric or happy. Yeah. It's more of a psychological crutch, isn't it? Makes sense, yeah. Makes sense. So apart from doing the old uh, having big long baths and you know stretching five times a day, mm -hmm. what other things do you do to relax? What's your hobbies? Yeah, so I love writing. So even before medicine, I was always writing and entering competitions and things. Uh, so I love, and it was always it was always fiction. It was flash fiction. Uh, which is really, really short stories. So that's something that I, I really love. And then short stories and novels, you know, these are things that I've been writing for a really long time, before, way before medicine. And then when I got into medical school, I was lucky to write for the school newspaper and student BMJ and that sort of thing. And then I did well with some of my articles, um, but it was always an interest. And then I wrote in my final year of my medical school, uh, I wrote a medical book, um, and then a couple of years after that, I wrote another medical book. I mean, they didn't set the world on fire and I wouldn't advise you Google them. But yeah, I, I was always interested in writing and illustrating and painting. 
which is why I think it's really important to do an undergraduate degree before you go to medical school. I think 18 is really young to go to medical school. You've got to have lived a little bit and developed some interests before you get to medical school, I, I think. I think the way I did it was a good way to do it. It sounds like it's worked for you. I think it's crucial, and I'm a big believer of this, is for people, you can have hobbies, like I play football, you can play sports, you can read. But I really think adding to your list of hobbies something creative is very beneficial, whether it's writing, playing guitar, painting, you know, it could be knitting, anything that, that creates something from nothing, because it's a chance to fixate yourself and people watch films for escapism. I think if you're doing something and you're so focused on that, there's nothing else you can think about. If you've got something bad going on, but you're knitting a scarf or something and you have to concentrate, there's no space for those other thoughts. So doing something creative for me is, is you know, it's, it's helpful for a lot of people who are in, involved in stuff like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's about it's about something which is so it's mindfulness and it's also something that's cathartic. So I, I was you know, as I say, I, I was writing fiction and novels and things like that. Um this is before I had a publicist, before I had an agent, which I'm I'm lucky to have now. And I would never despite the fact that I was working in a prison and and my friends are radiologists and pathologists and stuff. And they, you know, sometimes you tell them a story, fully anonymized, of course. And they'll be like, geez, I didn't know that was a thing. But I never thought that my life was interesting enough to write about. Isn't that funny? I really never thought that anyone would be interested in this. So there I was writing gothic horror and all this other sort of fiction, novels and things that I haven't seen the light of day yet. And then I had a chance encounter with another writer who sort of asked me what I did. And I said, I'm a GP. And then she said, oh, do you know any prison GPs? And that was surprising because we're, we're a rarity. And I said, yeah, me. <laughs> and that's when we had a long conversation. And she said, you need to write this as a book. And the um, epilogue to the book is about how I came to write this very book. And hopefully it will turn into a series. Hopefully there's more books so Stitched Up is just the first year of my working as a prison doctor, and there's been 10. So I, I do hope there'll be a sequel. I think it's it's one of them things that people want to know about because it's so foreign. But it's interesting you touched on something there, and it, it's Sod's Law. Whenever you work really hard at something, so say you're working on one of your gothic horror novels, or if I'm working on an episode, this is going to be really good. This is it. This is going to do really well. <laughs> And then you, you you might put slightly less effort in another one because there's not as much info or the story's not quite flowing and that one will do really well. And it's like, oh. Yeah. So so I went there. It was a, it was a writer's masterclass. And I, I was just talking about the novel that I, I'd been working on that was almost finished. And, and it was kind of like, mm, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then when I spoke about, you know, when I happened to speak about my life my work and just sort of explaining it and setting it out pretty much as it's set out in the book which is that medical school and then the dad thing then I went to start working with the homeless then I was working in the prison then I saw this person saw that person and you know I've always had an interest in writing and then I met a prisoner who was illiterate and was a very small part of their journey in becoming literate and then becoming someone who wrote poetry the prisoner was writing poetry and then within 12 months, they'd gone from someone who was really aggressive to not aggressive and how that was like my first year of working in prisons. And for someone to say, yeah, that is a good story. And you think, really? Is it? Not the vampires and the werewolves and the, you know, all, all the fantasy <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. People like not hearing about real, yeah, they like hearing about real life. I was like, don't you want to hear about an Indian vampire who wears a sari and who's a vegetarian, but is a vampire and needs to drink blood, but is a vegetarian? Now, that is a story. No, we want to hear about the, the violent prisoner that can't read, please. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it just shows, you, you know, sometimes we're not the best. We're not the best judge of what we are providing to other people or it's really easy and, and this is something again that you and I touched upon about having this imposter syndrome and just feeling like oh I'm just going through the motions I'm doing my best but I'm probably really rubbish and I'm an okay doctor and, and I'm okay you know it, I'm okay and I'm okay and then someone else says actually you know what this is really valuable and you don't know what to do with that compliment 
I, the um, the feedback that I've had from the book has been so overwhelmingly positive. And I was really nervous about writing it. I was really nervous about publishing it. I thought about writing it under, you know, a pseudonym or a nom de plume. But I'm glad I put my name to it. And the responses have been so heartening, I guess, that you're just like, wow, okay, really glad I did this. Really glad. Yeah, you should be proud of it. It's a really good book. I mean, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. As I say, I'm a slow reader. But I'm chipping away at sort of a chapter a night, if I can. If I get the time, it's a good read, right? It's easily, it's a, it flows quite well. It's a good read, apart from the <laughs> the, the odd long word that you doctors seem to use. I don't have a. Sometimes, if I was reading it on Kindle, I spend most of my time on Kindle highlighting words and figuring out what they mean. My grasp of English is clearly <laughs> not what I thought it was in high school. What advice would you give either yourself when you first started your journey, or anyone who's aspiring to be? Not just a prison GP, but a GP. What's one key piece of advice, something you wish you would have known when you started? Chill out. Really important. Because I think I think what I would say is that take it easy, enjoy the journey, and recognize the signs of burning out. Uh, so don't put yourself in a situation where you feel you have to do more than you actually can do. Because it's about sustainability and sustaining a long career in medicine and also being kind to yourself and looking after yourself as if you're one of your own patients if you can't look after yourself you won't be able to look after other people don't spread yourself too thin don't spread yourself too thinly and don't put yourself in harm's way and that could be with your physical health or it could be with your mental health being hit by the hgv for instance that really changed my outlook on what's important and what's not important because I used to work all the time and now you know I have back pain and I can't work all the time and I have to do my stretching and I have to do my self-care and I'm really grateful to it actually I lost the use of one of my legs and I've had lots of physio and sports therapy and stuff and I've regained it and now I'm strong again and I never want to get in that position where I'm in pain and I'm carrying on pain is your body's way of telling you to address something mm. That's awesome. So yeah, just a reminder, everyone, Dr. Y's book, Stitched Up. This is stories of life and death from a prison doctor available to buy now. It's a great read. The half I've read has been fantastic, which I will finish. I'm going to link it in the description so that people can hopefully pick it up. But yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. I'm really glad that you came on. We almost had a bit of a hiccup when you spent the uh, the first 15 minutes in the bath. That would have been an interesting interview. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. I'm really glad that I left my hot bath, which, you know, and I was doing my stretching exercises, I had my hot bath. I thought, right, I'm going to get ready for, for this. And then I realized that I think I might have had the time wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it, it could oh, have been worse. It could have been me in a bath towel. So, yeah. That would have made good viewing. It would have gone viral, maybe. But yeah, before we <laughs> close out, any final thoughts before we go? Yeah, I think um, it's really easy to label people and to label prisoners and then, you know, some or someone who has been in prison, like an ex-prisoner, and to just write them off. And that's not what we should be doing. We should be treating people like people. And again, it's really easy to label doctors as being these people who are always, you know, fine mentally and physically and the paragons of health um, and it's all right to be able to say that you're a doctor and that you're or a healthcare worker and that you're not okay, especially in these difficult times, especially with COVID. It's important to say you're not okay, and it's uh, important to try to find the humanity in everybody. I would say. Good advice. So that does it for another interview episode of British Murders. I've been Stuart Blues for Dr. Shahed Yousaf. Until next time, everybody. Cheerio.